All views expressed in the Heritage Science Podcast are the opinions of individuals and do not represent CIHA or any of its partner institutions. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Heritage Science Podcast, the show brought to you by students of CIHA, the Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology. I'm Hayley Simon and today we'll be discussing polluted buildings with CIHA student Denai Pocabelli, a building engineer who now works on building information modelling in heritage contexts, and Dr Joseph Graubove from the UCL Institute of Sustainable Heritage, whose research interests include the measuring and modelling of pollution in heritage buildings. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So Denai, what attracted you to work with buildings and specifically heritage ones? Oh, okay. Nice question. So um, actually, I have had passion for buildings since I was a kid. So let's say that the roots are quite old. But what really interested me and made me uh, make the choice to deal with heritage buildings was when I was at university in Rome, when I discovered for the first time ancient um, architecture and I had some restoration courses and basically also seeing how the value of let's say years of experience that are still here today and how to preserve this kind of value that we have discovered this is what really attracts me and this is what I really would like to preserve until here and this is why I'm working with them. So now you've moved to UCL, have you seen much difference between London and Rome? Well, yeah, <laughs> I would like to, not to say a common thing, but first of all, for the weather, of course. <laughs> but no, okay, no I'm just kidding. Uh, of course, there is a kind of a different, I would say, different kind of um, approach to heritage buildings. I mean, as far from, from my experience, in Rome and in Italy in general, the, uh, the restoration and the conservation schools are more focused on having a building, something like a sanctuary. So there is not really any user involve, involvement in that. But here in UCL and in general, I would say in Great Britain, as far from my experience again, I would say that stakeholders are much more focused on trying to to express the values of heritage and trying to involve and users as well and this is something that i really like in here excellent so joseph how did you come to work on pollution <laughs> i think it was because i i found a very bad paper uh, <laughs> they were trying to do a cfd a computer of computational fluid dynamics simulation of the degradation of marble, it was it was Michelangelo's David, and that, that was when I was at university, and I enjoyed fluid dynamics very much. It was what I liked the most when I was studying chemical engineering, and I found this paper, and I thought, well, I can do this better, and <laughs> and that's how I crafted my PhD proposal, and then I came to realize that CFD was much more important for buildings than for let's say, um, other solid objects like statues, paintings, and so on. And I started using CFD in buildings. This is how I came into modeling pollution in buildings, in heritage buildings. Do you have a favorite building you've worked with? (laughs) No one (coughs) ever asked me this. I'd say, I'd say absolutely house, the first building I worked with, and also the, the biggest, that was the residence of the Duke of Wellington in Hyde Park Corner. So we hear a lot about pollution but more in the context of 
an environmental climate change, that sort of thing. That's where we normally hear about pollution. But what pollutants are the most dangerous for historic buildings? Well, it's difficult to give an umbrella answer. Um, there are pollutants that, that, that are a challenge in the UK and some others are a worry in other parts of the world. The classic pollutants, like what we could call the godfather of atmospheric pollutants that affect heritage, SO2. Um, SO2 is a product of, of um, coal combustion. It was one of the first to be studied. It was studied by, by Faraday himself when he was making observations on the degradation of, of leather and red rot, which is associated with atmospheric pollution and so on. So it's a very classic pollutant which is associated with industrialization. Therefore, it's a huge problem in the countries that still burn a lot of coal. It's not a problem in the, in the UK anymore. So it really depends where. Now, it, it's quite fashionable to say SO2 is not longer a problem anymore. And people show this graph where the emissions of tons of CO2 in the atmosphere are continuously reducing. But if you plot this graph only for Africa and, and East Asia, you'll see them still increasing. So I believe it's still very much a problem. So perhaps in solidarity with the industrial countries or the non-post-industrial countries, I would say SO2 is still the biggest worry. So you both work on, on monitoring uh, buildings and what are the different challenges for monitoring the outside of a building compared to the inside of a building? Well, I would say that, let's say that in the inside, if a building is monitored and it's managed in a proper way, we have much more a uh, much more controlled environment. And in the outside, but in the outside, there is the climate and there's something we cannot control. But... This would be something like the most logical answer. Mm -hmm. However, in the inside of a historical building where there is also collection and everything, we have also the variable of people. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. sometimes are the most dangerous thing mm -hmm. ever because mm -hmm. even if you have signs and trying to say you have to do that, you shouldn't do that, uh, sometimes they're just completely unpredictable. So I would say that in the inside, the, the real challenge is trying to train people to behave in a way that it is uh, enjoyable for them to enjoy the, the collections or the building and also at the meantime to be right and respectful for the, the, the value of the collections and the building itself. And for the, for the outside, the only thing that we can do is trying to predict what it can happen because of the climate, because of the pollution. But of course, it's still something that it's ongoing. So it's still quite, quite unpredictable. I think that's very good <coughs> uh, that it, it's not, I mean, both inside and outside, we can, our capacity to monitor and to make predictions far exceeds what the level of detail that we require for many daily decisions. And the, it, it's, it's true that in some instances, what's more interesting is to... In reality, why do, why do we want to measure inside or outside the building? Uh, we want, generally, we want to obtain data that will support um, management de decisions or will inform the maintenance of the building and so on. And in some instances, this will be better supported with monitoring and showing how something has been evolving in some others, trying to make predictions. And in different different instances, as, as you say, outside, it may be more interesting sometimes to forecast rather than simply state the fact that there's some staining in the wall and so on. The, for me, the key question with both predictions and monitoring in buildings 
it's what is really the level of detail that, that we, we require. Yeah. Because we are in a situation in this field where we can monitor with so much detail. The instrument is so precise, we can monitor on the order of, of, of parts per million every second for a year. And equally with simulations, we can be very, very, very detailed. But how much is necessary? I think that's the, the biggest challenge that the field is facing right so now. So it's more of kind of a rich man's problem. You've got too much data, you don't quite know what to do with it. Absolutely. I think that's at least, I mean, it may be similar for, 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 for BIM, for building information modeling, but I, I know most for, for CFD, for computational fluid dynamics, for the simulation of airflow within buildings. And what we can do far exceeds what we are interested in. And you can see that many papers that have been published on, on simulations of pollutant movement inside buildings end up by saying, we demonstrate that CFD is very useful for buildings. And this has been like this for 20 years. So it has been totally super demonstrated that CFD is very useful for buildings. Well, and what I ask is, and now what? And I think with BIM it may be something similar, isn't it? So what is BIM? You talk about <coughs> building information Yeah, we, I started talking about BIM without defining it, and that's the number <coughs> one scene with BIM, I think. So... BIM is building information modeling, and it is something that has been used for, I would say, the very last years. A life cycle management of a building, so it means that it is, it is able to basically um, describe a building since his birth until its death, let's say. So it's not exactly just one software, Okay, let's say that for the first for the first thing that it's a virtual kind of uh, it's a virtual description of a building. So it could uh, it could be done with a different kind of software. But the real power of BIM is that it is able to describe a building since his birth until his death. And it means that by planning the, the, the first, for example, the plants, the elevations or wherever, then it is it should be possible to put also environmental data and to monitor the building when it's ready. It should be possible to have also links with material and so on. And it is basically now the most used software and tool to to plan buildings but the, the real challenge in here is that it was developed for new buildings and now the problem is, is how we use this super powerful tool for heritage buildings i think w we should clarify that this you know is the answer you get if you ask the eye but if you <laughs> ask anyone else in the world you'll get a completely different answer because beam is so dependent on the context and everyone seems to use a definition yeah. of BIM that suits their purposes. It's, it's a field which is evolving so fast that everyone uses different definitions. And where you, when you read the review on BIM, there are many papers that try to review the use of BIM in heritage and so on. Sometimes they seem like an effort at trying to define what BIM is. Half of the paper is yeah, spent yeah, 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 in terminology. True. By building, I mean this, I mean that the building exists <coughs> or that it's historic, or by modeling, I mean uh, forecasting, or I mean introducing data, or I mean helping processes. It means so many things. So this is why the most politically correct answer is life cycle management tool for buildings. Exactly. And then you can That's interpret that <laughs> as you like. Or as I would like to think about it, something on a computer that tells you about buildings. 
Yeah, yeah. And oh. I think that's one oh. of the most accurate Maybe, definitions. Yes. <laughs> and so with this BIM, what's the potential? Why would we use it as a, as a management tool? Why, why use this computational thing rather than just the tried and tested method that people have done for forever? Well, first of all, just because technology goes on, so <laughs> this this should be just one good um, good reason. But the the truth is that as far as now, now BIM is still more and more used, and we have a lot of heritage buildings that actually are half new and half heritage. And how do you connect those two, for example, this kind of thing, or the other problem that it was really common in something like 10 years ago, let's say, is that we have data loss, data replication, uh, for example, different professionals working on a, on the same heritage buildings and problems with communication. Where did you put this plan? I don't know, maybe it's there. And it it is really a mess when it's paper. Uh, on the other hand, when you have all the information of a building inside the computer, there is also the problem of data loss with computer, but this is, I would say, another kind of problem. Mm. Um, but in general, the good part of using BIM with Heritage is, first of all, trying to enable professionals to work together at the same time, because there is something like a central model that is continuously updated from different inputs. So this this means that at, at every single, let's say, at every single moment, you have always the updated version of your building. So if I don't know if the survey surveyor made a mistake, he can always uh, change it and all the other professionals are aware of that. So you are not duplicating your work uh, more and more. And also it's the best way to have a holistic view of the heritage building and being able to have the holistic view, so meaning having geometrical data, historical data, materials and everything, it's basically the base to have also a good conservation project, to my opinion at least. Yeah, I think this this is very nicely illustrated with a with a practical example. Mm. Let's go back to uh, to Apsley House. It's it's managed by um, Historic England, and it's it's one of the buildings that, uh, for for some reason, partly because it's it's accessible, partly because it has all sorts of problems of pollution related problems, because just it's just some front of a very busy roundabout. It's one of the the buildings. Were, that are more heavily monitored in London, I believe. While I, wa- while I was doing monitoring there during my PhD, and that was uh, four or three years ago, um, there were at least three other people monitoring for other different projects. There was someone who was testing an NO2 and SO2 uh, sensor that was low cost or something like this, that was made with an Arduino. There was something, someone testing um, other... Um, I think there were passive sensors or, or on top of display cases, and I was monitoring particulate matter. Now, there was all these people collecting data at the same time. Now, all this data resides in our computers. I personally <laughs> have lost files of this data. So my, my data doesn't exist anymore, only my thesis, but I don't have the Excel file anymore. Their data resides in their computers, or perhaps they've lost it as well. But it was data, it was it was spatially resolved, so it was each data point belonged to a particular space in the building, and it was um, time resolved, so they were taking it during time. And it, it would be possible to put all this data together on a... If a BIM model of this house existed, 
all the different researchers could just give it to whoever manages the model and store it there for future reference. So I could go back and compare and cross compare the data and so on. <laughs> on top of that, it's a building with different layers of construction. It was an originally a Robert Adam building. And then um, it, it was when it was bought by the Duke of Wellington, there were other floors added and it was expanded and so on. And this, these plans of the building, they are stored somewhere in the offices of English Heritage. When I was working there, I needed to know details of the ventilation system. The plans of the ventilation system are stored somewhere else in English Heritage, and, and the, 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 the two plans don't necessarily match. So using building information modeling would mean that the people who manage the states and maintain the, the filtration system, the heating system, the ventilation system, the people who, who study the fabric of the building and those who monitor it use the same three-dimensional model and are able to share and compare this data. And you could also input your fluid dynamics, computational fluid dynamics simulations in there as well. Would that precisely, be yeah. precisely. Is there a maximum capacity for something like this, like a maximum file size you can input, or is it all just in the cloud and it's fine? I'm not really aware of that, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, they're using BIM to plan skyscrapers. In some buildings, the especially when you want to put a lot of detail in the... Um, the architecture, the architecture details outside. The, the the files are so heavy that later they can't be opened by anyone. Oh, yeah, People yeah, get yeah. carried away with uh, laser scans, mm. um, specifically. Yeah, but this is because of the point clouds. Yeah, exactly. So uh, perhaps the biggest contribution to the size of the file is the... Uh, is the point cloud. Is yeah. the point cloud. Because it's, it's huge. It has billions and billions of points. The point cloud, it's, uh, it's the, um, the output of a laser scan. So when you laser scan a building, and then the laser scan has like as an output something like millions or billions of dots and then these dots are digitized and this is the point cloud but it, it's super heavy i remember the computer crashing every two minutes because of that but i'm, I'm not really sure about putting other kind of information like excels or no. photos i don't think that I, this is the real i think we are not that uh, we are not but at the point yeah. yet where the introduction of simulation and monitoring data is a problem i think the biggest contribution to the data files is the geometry mm. but even with the geometry we are again at a situation at another rich man's problem if you will that we can virtually go to infinite level of detail and and introduce variations in the geometry of centimeters. Yes, of it course. was in the institute called the level of detail. And one of the questions out there now is which level of mm. detail do we need for each application? Yeah, this is the challenge actually because sometimes it, it really depends on the kind of conversation of conservation that you need. If you need a holistic, let's say facade conservation, it is different. The the level of detail should be different that rather than if you need the conservation of a small stonework, for example. So it's mm. everything is there. Mm. And in my view, for most degradation processes, and I'm thinking from a, a, a heritage science per perspective, I don't think we need a lot of detail, to be honest. As long as you can capture the, the main shapes outside, as long as you can capture the main shapes that will affect the direction of wind and wind-driven rain mm. and so on, you are fine regarding the staining. Yes. Um, probably. I'm not sure. Definitely indoors, since most of the processes are quite homogeneous in a, every single room. It's totally pointless to have surfaces that are more detailed than one 
meter or half a meter or something like this, at most 10 centimeters. But having indoor models for the purpose of monitoring and simulating in heritage buildings, it's pointless to have a detail smaller than one centimeter. It may be, but that's, that's a matter of research. And this is just my hunch. Yeah, in in fact, debate. no one has quantified this accurately. <laughs> And then I is in the process of doing it. <laughs> Actually, yes. Uh, as far as I'm not the, for example, um, important institutions uh, here in in the UK are still um, researching and trying to agree about which level of detail we really need. Try, they're trying to standardize that, and they're still discussing it. Mm-hmm. So, so with pollutants on the outside of buildings. What kind of things would you want to be monitoring or measuring? Well, what it could be kind of, let's say, dangerous, unquote, in uh, in the outside. There were acid rains. Now they're not that acid, as Giuseppe told us, because they, the acid rains tend to corrode stones. Uh, on, on the other hand, pollutants that are produced by means of transport in correlation with rain, they normally tend to produce crusts, deposits or black crusts. And these are two really common alteration and weatherings that we can find in, um, actually in all the facades, but especially in historic facades. And we are more, um, we tend to protect them more because of all the, the value of the heritage that is behind it. So for that, would you be looking at colour change or f- deposit formation? Stain, yes, stains and black crusts and uh, yeah, this kind of, uh, of weatherings. Yeah, I would say um, a lot of the, the monitoring in an environment which is relatively clean of pollutants will be related to, to moisture-induced degradation yes. processes. Yes. Uh, Erosion by wind, but... And that could be moisture that comes from, from rain or that comes from the ground mm. and that results in things as diverse as, as lichen growth or um, or salty fluorescence and so on. And these are the sorts of patterns of degradation that could be included in a beam model. So, Dana, you mentioned a bit earlier about people being one of the worst things for the inside of a building. How would a manager change their approach depending on whether the building is open to the public or not open to the public? Because from what you're saying, the open to the public one would be at far more risk. Well, yeah, the, the risk, of course, is, is higher because just logically because you cannot predict what people are going to do. On the other hand, when you have a collection that has a value and you decide not to show it, you're just hiding something. Why? (laughs) So I just believe that there there should be always a balance between the the possibility for the people to see the collection and the, the protection of the collection itself. Of course, as one of the guidelines of English heritage and historic, English, and historic England as well, is that we have, I mean, the heritage that we have is is a fortune, is something, is a luck that we have from our past, and we cannot hide it. The public should always be involved, and the public should be trained to understand the value of that. So hiding it because we don't want to touch it is... Uh, it's it's completely clashing with with all the the strategies. On the other hand, we cannot have something like a really 
valuable and delicate object with no protection with kids jumping on it of course so <laughs> i'm now i'm just exaggerating but just to, to trying to explain the um problem so what we should try to do is trying to protect the objects but make them visible and at the same time also trying to train the public that is coming so putting labels or trying to say please do not touch and do not break and things like this. <laughs> I'm a great fan of passive solutions mm. that uh, that mitigate the, the negative effects of any agents of deterioration related to the public. It's it's true that there's often this, this trade-off about uh, limiting access to increase um, preservation, particularly when the agent that is causing the undesired changes is correlated with the public. You know, and a typical example is the dust mm. carried by the visitors. And there are methods. I, I, I suspect there are some ways in which you can reduce the effect of... And I'll now go into this particular example of dust because it's very related to the public, but also because it's one I, I, I know a little bit about. I, I'm sure there are ways in which you can... Uh, reduce the amount of dust that will fall on your surfaces without necessarily reducing the amount of visitors. But this needs a lot of research. They are small strategies. For example, um, try to avoid visitors walking in parallel to a surface where you want to prevent the position. So try to avoid visitors walking very close. Sometimes there are exhibitions that um, put the, the object of more value towards the end of the exhibition. So all the dust will fall before getting to the object with more value. So altering the visitor path. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily fulfill the purpose of educating the visitor because they simply don't know. But it's, it's totally passive and it doesn't intervene in the experience. There was also, uh, I think Mattia was mentioning that something like in Padova they have a pump of air bef- before Yes. Uh, where, peop- where people were cleaned yeah. of the dust and then they could Yeah, it's somewhere enter. with massage of frescoes. Yeah. I just remember Pado. I don't remember where exactly it is, but I remember that I had something like impressed. I think that's a very bad idea. <laughs> yes? Um, well, why? I know, perhaps they've done the economic balance on it. I mean, it, I'm sure it's very efficient removing dust. So it removes the dust very well. But... Uh, it also consumes a lot of energy, and all these things should be made in comparison. If there is a limited bu- budget for, for preventive conservation measures, perhaps you don't want to invest all your energy in removing a single pollutant. Uh, perhaps then there are needs, that happens often, that there are needs of temperature control, mm-hmm. for example, or of cleaning inside, then, then you won't have money for it. So these things need to be assessed together, hol- yeah. holistically. <coughs> Would I say the word holistically would go directly to building information modeling very nicely. Um, in terms of dust, are there any dangers to dust beyond just covering a surface and making it look a bit unpleasant? Does dust accelerate degradation in any way? Yes, it does, but not a lot. And again, that's that's something that it's good to assess in comparison. So if we are talking household dust, it has a very small chemical effect. Let's say. And I like to compare its chemical effect with the effect of other agents of deterioration. The effect of household dust on organic materials, it's much smaller than the effect of increasing the, the temperature of your room for a couple of degrees. So now, of course, it's very easy and sometimes tempting to publish 
a paper saying, hey, Absorb serves a positive correlation here. You know, the objects that have more dust on them are more degraded after I've put them in an oven. Dust is very chemically dangerous. But when you put that in context, you realize that still the data tells you that it's much more important to have a well-controlled environment than to worry a lot about the chemical effects of dust. Now, of course, this is research that only that has been done for some specific materials. And in order to make this broad, this sweeping statement, you should test different types of dust and different types of materials very, very carefully. But yes, it does some. It has some chemical effect, especially if it has. Um, transition metals into it. It, it, it depends. Dust is a very broad concept and it has little bits of matter of different origins. Some of them will come from combustion of fossil fuels and those may have um, metals and may react with organic materials. Others uh, have other origins and are just fibers that fall from our clothing or pieces of humans that in reality have very little chemical effects. So picking up on that idea of some things are more important than others and it's about putting everything <laughs> in context. That's something that the, the building information modeling is, sounds like it'd be very good at. Um, are there mechanisms within the BIM model to have like rankings and like highlighting things saying, Anella, red, your, your temperature is way too high. This is the thing you should be focusing on. Is there scope for that within a BIM model? This is what we're trying to do actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, um, as, as far as now, there are some tools that permit simulations and analysis, but I have not tried them yet. So I can just imagine that it should be possible, but I'm not really aware mm. about how much. So I don't want to say something that I'm not aware because someone yeah, could but say. But at least in theory, we can, we can have this vision that is possible. I think, I think it, I, I mean, if you have a simulation, I mean, if you can do a simulation in you and if you have an Excel, I don't, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to have also the red highlights. So yeah. in theory, I think it's possible, but I'm not aware if it's now. I don't think so. I mean, the, no, and now it's not for sure, but the, the, the beam model itself can bring together all the monitored and simulated data. But then you need some way to make it comparable in order to make yeah, this yeah, comparative yeah, sure. assessment. And that can only be done through um, the functions, so experimental functions that relate an input, the level of a pollutant, the level of humidity, the level of rain, with an output, the loss of uh, mm. surface recession or the loss of DP of the materials or the durability and so on. So it could be that the BIM model gets all the data in and then calculates these estimates. This still doesn't make all the estimates directly comparable. And it, it's still, a, I think BIM model needs to evolve, BIM modeling so needs to evolve <laughs> in, in, in so much and in parallel with the development of uh, damage functions and models that relate agents of deterioration with observed effects. Yeah, for sure. For sure, because I mean, until now, as, as I said, the problem is that BIM is just able, just, of course not, it's, it's able to, to manage the whole life cycle of a new building, but it doesn't know, it's, it's not possible still to monitor and to put heritage specific information in it just because it was not developed for this purpose. So basically now the, the challenge that a lot of researchers have is how do we use this kind of tool that, that is currently 
used and how do we adapt it, how do we adapt our uh, methodology, heritage specific methodology to it. So this is kind of still open. Yeah, uh, and it's good that you give this disclaimer because we may give the impression now no, that, no, no, that we may can solve all the problems. Still open. And yeah. as far as I know, there are, I mean, and also the opinions are kind of contrasting because there are some researchers that are saying no beam is not it's not possible to use beam with heritage and there are some others saying well no we can because we should just trying to i mean we, there is a lot of research in it still so also the the topic it's it's quite hot the the, the opinions are really contrasting I, 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 I'm not afraid to admit that I'm a, a beam agnostic. <laughs> well, uh, me too, and I'm working <laughs> on it. <so> <laughs> and perhaps it's the only thing that we should be. It's, it's, I'd say agnostic in quite a, 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 a strict meaning of the word, uh, <coughs> in, in that I need a, a, a proper definition of beam in order to discuss whether it works or not, isn't it? And I think right now we're working at definition. What does beam mean when applied to heritage. heritage and it may mean something completely different to what it means to people who use it in the construction of new buildings because it's something it's a concept that has was born outside heritage mm -hmm. and that we are importing or recreating from heritage adapting or whatever yeah worth but maybe that's the place where it can perform best is on that interface so where you've got old buildings that are having new bits put on and renovations and upgrades and things like that maybe that's where can really come into its own where you have this new information in the with the with the old yeah. ones you mean i would say that this would be exactly the case where you need one platform one virtual platform that it's embedding basically uh, the the new parts and the old parts but on the other hand it would be not logical having different tools for the same object that has just different age or that has had that has had a different history. Mm. So why should we do our conservation projects with paper and plan the new buildings with virtual software? That's <laughs> there's kind of uh, a fifty years technology <laughs> gap on that. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's really admit uh, possible. What's the word? And I think it would be fair <coughs> to say that the, most of the buildings already exist, isn't it? Been it's not sometimes there there is the criticism that there's not enough um there wouldn't be enough users for a s beam software package specific for heritage but in reality most of the buildings exist already the, in comparison to the ones that are being built i would say the ones that are being built are a comparison are, are a minority in comparison mm. with all the buildings that exist so a beam for existing buildings it's very close to a beam for heritage. Yeah. It only needs to have the capability to be useful for heritage science and preventive conservation. Yeah, to have some heritage specific information that of course new buildings do not have. For example, historical layers. A new building do not have a historical layer. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for for this month. But thank you, Danai and Joseph. It's thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. <laughs> The Heritage Science Podcast is brought to you by the EPSRC Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology, produced in collaboration with the University College London's Digital Media Department.
If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, contact us via Twitter at SeeHerCDT, that's S-E-A-H-A-C-D-T, or using the hashtag HSPodcast. Alternatively, please email us using the address seeher-manager at ucl.ac.uk or through the website www.seeher-cdt.ac.uk.